Kia ora. Thanks for tuning in to the We Fucking Love Style Ups podcast, brought to you by Talent Army. Hey everyone, Troy Hammond here and welcome back or welcome to the We Fucking Love Startups podcast. Today is actually a special series that we're going to be pushing out over the next couple of months. We're currently sitting at the Sunrise Festival or the Sunrise Conference by Blackbird. It's a conference for founders to hear the stories of other founders and really help network, uplift, um, read the playbook and hear the playbook from other founders. So it's quite a unique series that we're pushing out. They're going to be shorter episodes, 30-minute episodes, really amazing guests, and so I hope you really enjoy them. On this episode, we are chatting with Cameron Adams. Cam is the co-founder and chief product officer of Canva. Canva is a tool that a lot of us use, a lot of us know, a lot of us love, and so I've been really curious to understand the Canva story, Cameron's story about how he got into things. He was really amazing and really forthcoming with his energy and experience and his conversation, and so I hope you really enjoyed this one as much as I did. Obviously, you've had a quite a successful you know recent gig but it didn't start there like you know like let's go back to back to the start like you um you've had your own companies you worked at google and some others and so that have it was was it always your buzz to get into the sort of startup industry i think uh getting into technology was always always my thing so i grew up in melbourne i went to the university of melbourne and i studied Law and computer science there, which is a bit of an odd combination. Good for startups though, right? It, it is good. You get to read all the contracts and yeah. do all the code. Um, and at the end of university, I didn't really know what I wanted to do. I didn't want to do law. Yeah. Um, I wasn't like a full-on software engineer, so I didn't want to go straight into a job like that. But I actually had a part-time job as a graphic designer. And right at the time, this is... You know, dating me a bit, but just around 2000. Mm-hmm. And uh, after the dot-com boom, Australia's internet industry was picking up. And my graphic design plus computer science segued into web design, like mm-hmm. creating websites for people. So I created a business out of that and got a lot of different clients around Australia. Actually, one of my clients was Atlassian. I did mm-hmm. one of their first public websites. And uh, sort of made a name for myself in the local scene and eventually ended up getting referred to a job at Google. And this was for like a super top secret project that I had no idea about when I walked in. It was uh, was by the founders of Maps. So they had got acquired, I think around 2002 or something. They had built Maps obviously into a great success and they were looking for their next thing. Uh, And they were really keen on communication. So they ended up starting this product called Google Wave, which mm. was this pretty ambitious product trying to revolutionize email, take it into real-time collaborative uh, workflows. And they needed to make like a prototype of it to prove to Larry and Sergey, the bosses of Google, that it was worth backing it. So they were in the process of making this prototype and they needed a designer to work on it. Someone referred me in. I remember walking into the Google Sydney office for this mysterious semi-job interview uh, and they ushered me into this room that was completely blacked out, like no one in the office could see what they were doing. And they kind of walked me through it and I chatted to them, got a contract, worked with them for six months and built that prototype. And off the back of that, Larry, Sergey, and I think Eric was still CEO, Eric Schmidt, uh, they all said, love it, let's do it. So they went from a team of four people to 30 people overnight. Uh, How many people in the Sydney office at this stage? At that stage, I think there were probably about 100 people in the Sydney office. 
Um, and yeah, it was all secret from them. It, in order to like get onto the project, you had to sign an NDA. And they ran it very much as a startup inside Google. And that was part of why they wanted to back a project like this, I think, because they felt at the time that innovation had slowed a bit mm. and there was all this slightly political machinations going on with the different products that existed at the time. So they were trying to break that deadlock. Um, and they thought that having an innovative, under-the-covers project was a way to do that. Um, and I ended up working on that project for three and a half years. We launched it. It flopped terribly, but so much of that technology and way of thinking flowed into other products. And so many of the people that worked on Google Wave yeah. spread out over the world. A lot of them ended up leaving Google, going to places like Facebook, starting their own startups. Um, and we even managed to get some of them to come back to Canva and ply their trade there. Mm, so let's go back to that what way of thinking you say, right? That way of thinking. What, how would you define that way of thinking? Which way of thinking you... So you said the, like the Google way of thinking, the people that were there, the Googlers, like what was, it, what was so special about it? I think at Google there was this sense that nothing was impossible. Like you have an idea and you can figure out how to execute on it. You just spend some time, you get the right people in the room and they'll find a solution for it, which I think as someone going into a startup is incredibly valuable because it mm. just opens your mind and lets you... Think big, dream huge, and create the vision that you need when you're trying to get investors to come on board, when you're trying to build a team, you're convincing people to come on this long journey with you. Uh, having that unbridled thinking is really valuable, I think. Mm, awesome. And then, so how, and then you, after Wave, you went and did your own email startup, right? Yeah, so out of Wave, um, I had a close connection with a couple of engineers there, and we decided to tackle email again and try and do it slightly less uh, forward-thinking than Wave, like something a bit more acceptable to the market. Uh, so we decided to do a slightly more futuristic email client and we called that Fluent. Um, and it went really well. Like the three of us together created a beautiful product that people really loved. Um, but we hadn't quite figured out the business model um, mm. when we started. And that started emerging... It got to the point where we had this waiting list of about 80,000 people waiting to get on the product um, and we just couldn't put them on because it was so expensive to run our service. So that happened and we, we were like, okay, we can't proceed with this big waiting list of people. We hadn't got our uh, business model or our financial infrastructure in place to like take payments. So we thought... Rather than bootstrapping ourselves, which was our original plan, we'd try and go for funding um, because we had a lot of fun, uh, investor interest at the mm. time as well. So we ended up going to San Francisco, traipsed up and down Sand Hill Road for two months, pitching to people who at the start were incredibly excited and then they're like, yeah, super excited. If this person comes in, I'm definitely in on the round. And mm. you know, trying to pull that first round together was incredibly hard. Uh, and we didn't quite make it over the line with that one. We got a couple of term sheets a bunch of drama happened but we never we never signed our first round on that what so do you think what do you think that was it was combination um email is an interesting thing to tackle yeah, i've uh, got a, a bunch of friends who've tried it as well yeah it's like it's this a, it's this mythical beast that you're trying to yeah. trying to track down and a lot of people get attracted to it um and because it's fundamentally flawed right it is like yeah. How do you email as a email as a protocol is really cr 
crap to work with, yeah. but it's so embedded in people's workflows and people use it in totally different ways. Mm. Like the way you use email will be different to the way I use it, will be different to the way that some other huge organization uses it. And you've got these big incumbents in there like um, Outlook and Gmail, mm. and they're basically offering a service for free. So if you're trying to compete with them, it's incredibly hard because mm. you're going to have to pay the costs that they can amortize across their huge organizations. Um, and it is still essentially really costly to run an email server because mm. you have to store people's data, you have to process it. Um, there's a lot of cost in there. So it's really hard as a new starter to go up, go up against those incumbents. And I think you've seen it through a bunch of the products that have come out since um, stuff like Mailbox and, yeah. and a few others where it seemed really promising, but getting over that, I think that you can get your early adopters in, but bridging the chasm is really hard to get to the scale that you need of bunch of people using your email servers. Yeah, I'm an early adopter of any email server. Like, <laughs> I, anything that comes out, I want to try it, but it's like hard when they just can't get any further. Yeah, I went through this phase where I would have a new email app every six months <laughs> and now I've just given up. I've got like comfortable app now. I don't need any more innovation in that space. Mm. And you've got things now like Slack and yeah. a bunch of other messaging and collaboration platforms that have filled the space. But that's almost the problem now is that there's so many of them now. Like. I, I worked out, I, I had someone call me a couple of weeks ago and they're really annoyed that I hadn't got back to the text message. And I was like, oh, sorry, I'm, I get a lot of messages on all platforms. And they're like, you can't get that many messages. So I, I tracked it and I was like, oh, I had a curiosity the next week, I'm going to track it. I had 480 text messages. Uh, there was like a thousand plus emails. There was like 60 odd Facebook messengers. There was WhatsApp messages. There was DMs on Twitter or X. There was this. And it was something in the vicinity of like 2,500, 3,000 messages that people had sent me that week. And I was like, holy fucking shit, we just need one platform almost. You know, we need something to make life easier. Yeah, it, it's always the holy grail and good luck to the person who can crack it. Mm. And so how did you then um, meet up with Melanco? Like how did you, how did that relationship sort of start? So towards the end of Fluent, we were going through our funding round uh, and I got this random call from uh, one of the founders of Google Wave, Google Maps. Yeah. Uh, There's a guy called Lars Rasmussen, who was my boss at Google. And he said, oh, there's this couple, they need some advice on technology, go chat to them. Uh, so I went in not having any preconceived notions about what I was there for, definitely not looking for a job, and started chatting to Mel. Uh, and her vision of design really resonated with me because of my background in graphic design and the work I'd been doing for the last decade. Um, I wasn't ready to move across because I had a pretty sweet product that I <laughs> built and funding was just around the corner. So I walked away from that meeting with a really great impression, uh, but no plans to join them. And then as our you know, uh, funding round progressed or, or didn't progress with Fluent, um, my wife and I were looking at what our options were. So we, we were living in Sydney. Uh, I'd worked at Google. I didn't want to go back into a big mm. company again. And basically the only option was to go to San Francisco and, and find some great startup to work up work, work for there. Uh, and Lisa, my wife, said, why don't you just get back in contact with that couple that you chatted to you know, a few months ago and see how they're going. So I did. And Was it Canva then or was it? It was Canva, yeah, it was, it was still emerging. Yeah. Um, it, in the pitch deck, it was Canva that Mel was, was trying to get investors into. Yeah. Uh, they were running a company at the time called Fusion Yearbooks, yeah. which was an Australian yearbook company 
Um, and it got a fair bit of traction within the yearbook market. It let people design their own yearbook. Uh, but Canva was an extension of that. So taking it beyond yearbooks to pretty much anything you can design mm-hmm. um, and really uh, supplying a proper product platform technology and experience for it. Mm-hmm. Um, so that was what she was pitching. She didn't have anyone on board. Investors kept saying, mm, you don't quite have the right team. Uh, so when I got back in touch with them, um, they were like, yes, come on board. Um, and together the three of us formed exactly the right team that investors were looking for in order to actually make this thing happen. And I think when I met them, I really recognized in them all the jigsaw pieces coming together, like mm. all three of us having the required skills to come together and holistically make an organization and a product that actually worked. It wasn't just design. It wasn't just the engineering. It wasn't just business and operations. It was all of it working together in harmony. Um, and I think that was what I'd been looking for for the past mm. decade with all the people that I'd partnered with. How did you feel? What was it like going to a husband and wife team though? What was that nuance like? It's interesting. I don't think I... I really thought about it at the time, um, but we definitely had to do a lot of work to overcome those barriers because they're just, just the in constant. They're just in constant yeah, communication. Yeah, yeah. Um, you, you leave the office and they're they're having dinner and talking <laughs> yeah. about uh, problems of the day. So there is a slight imbalance there, but I think we've over the years we've really worked out how to work within the constraints of that. Yeah, awesome. And so, what were the roles then that you defined by yourselves at that three at that three stage? Did you yeah. have, did you have defined roles, or was it just hey, we've got the right skill set now? Yeah, we did have defined roles actually. So um, Mel's the CEO; she holds a lot of the vision and and inspires the whole company to to work towards the mission of empowering the world to design. Uh, Cliff is our chief operating officer, um, and I'm our chief product officer. Yeah, uh, there is some. Well, there's plenty of overlap in there, but we also have our own distinct skills that allow us to, to not be stepping on each other's toes all the time. And I think that's how it works best. Were you product and technology? Yeah, or? product and technology. So uh, I worked on a lot of the front-end code for the first year or two. Um, focused then... So I did design and technology for a long time, mm. relinquished the technology a bit earlier, held on to the design for a bit longer, um, and now a lot more product in terms of product management, et cetera, yeah. but I also dabble in design, but yeah. I'm not, uh, not making many mock-ups nowadays. Yeah, yeah. Do you, what's your take on like uh, friends of mine, designers who are now chief product officers, they're always like, best chief product officer come from design, you know, like that way of thinking definitely helps. And I'm like, oh, I don't know. Do, if you ask a, an engineering person that goes to product, they'll tell you engineering. I think it very much depends upon the DNA of your organization and also what you're trying to build. If you're trying to build some back-end service that does payments, then designer probably isn't your yeah. best product leader. But for a company like us where our tool is all about design and about visual communication – having that strong design thread is incredibly valuable. Mm. But I think you look at a bunch of different organizations and you can't, you can't take a playbook from Amazon and just apply it to your company yeah. or Spotify or Netflix because the people who founded those companies, the spaces they're operating in and the products they're actually trying to create are very contextual. Mm. Um, and I kind of have this theory that your product org or the way you develop product 
matches the medium within which your product is developed. Mm. Um, so I was talking to one of the product leaders at Spotify, uh, and obviously Spotify is a very auditory product. Yep. Uh, and he said they do a lot of discussion. Like they do a lot of talking about product. That's how they resolve decisions, how they raise new ideas and all this sort of stuff. By, by de- default, like was that something that they'd architected to talk about product because it's the audio nature of it or was it just something that naturally happened? It's just natural. It's culture. It's it's the type of people who want to make a music product, who want to make a podcast product. Like it's people who listen a lot uh, and who are in that world. Whereas Amazon is extremely data-driven. Like you talk to a product manager from Amazon, you never see a chart. It's all just tables of data and they can see the matrix within all that data (laughs) and that's how they operate. And I think that is driven from the origins of that company and the type of business that they run. Uh, We are a very visual company. We're all Mm. about visual communication. um, And we rely a lot on design and pitch decks and people using visuals to communicate their ideas and inspire teams to come together. Yeah. Was the vision that Canva is now the same vision from the start? Was it like to democratise the sort of design industry? or? Yeah, the vision has been has been that since the very beginning. Uh, and I think that's part of our success over the last 11 years is that the vision allows us to continue to expand and expand into hundreds of different areas and different niches and focus on different users and add on different parts of the product. Um, we have this saying that we're only 1% of the way there. Yeah, Nikki was telling me before. <laughs> it's, always, it's always true, even as we grow. So as we've gone from 1 million to 100 million users, it's still true because the more that we build on the product, the more people come in, the more uses we find for Canva, the more uses our customers find for Canva, the more opportunities arise for us. The ability mm. to go into markets that don't speak English, uh, to go into video as opposed to static design like the the opportunities just continue to unfold for us which always mean that the area we're expanding into is expanding itself yeah. uh, so we're only one percent of the way there can you see what john and i talking talking about this before um i use canva daily you know and we were talking about oh you can spot canva designs really quickly like do you see canva designs in the world and you go, oh yeah i see that i know that definitely uh Definitely a few years ago, it was a bit easier to do that. Yeah. I think now our content library has increased massively. Uh, so the number of templates that you can access in Canva, we've got over 100 million photographs and illustrations yeah. and videos that you can use. So the language of Canva is now the language of design. Uh, mm. So it's a bit harder to spot a Canva design, but there are still some classic templates that I yeah, see out and about. Kids' invitations. Yeah. And, yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's cool, man. It's real cool. Hey, so let's go back right, to the early days of Canva. So I had, I can't remember if I read or if I watched something that you, was it the night before or a couple of days before, got hit by a car before releasing the first product that you were involved on? Yeah, so we, we, um, we launched our product on August 26, 2013, which was a Tuesday, uh, and... We were pulling an all-nighter that weekend before just to get the product ship shape. And I always ride to work on my bicycle. And Saturday night, 8 p.m., I was going home from the office and there's this steep hill right around the corner from our office in Surrey Hills. And I was going down that hill and out of the corner of my eye, I could just see this taxi that had no idea what it was doing. And it was just crossing this three-lane road and just stopped right in front of me and there was nothing I could do. Um, I was going about 45 kilometers an hour at the time and I just hit the bonnet of the taxi, blacked out, 
woke up on the road. Luckily, one of the bouncers from the pub nearby had rushed over, had stopped any other traffic coming down the hill from hitting me. Um, and I was just dripping blood onto the road. Um, I couldn't speak. Uh, I had a helmet on, yeah, very fortunately, yeah. but I'd kind of hit my jaw and my mouth was just completely um, ruined. Uh, so I think the bouncer managed to get my phone. We prodded some numbers up uh, and he got onto one of my co-founders, Cliff, who jumped in their van, came around the corner and took me off to hospital. Um, and next day, Sunday, back coding. <laughs> we needed to ship. We had yeah. a bunch of press ready to go that Tuesday, so it needed to happen. Yeah, shit, yeah. Um, and then the launch, I hear that you were like, ex- like ready for like just to watch the numbers coming in, sit there watching the analytics, and it was just not as successful at the start as you thought it would be, but... Like, I think it's every startup success yeah, story. Course, like yeah. you read, you read the stories of Instagram or Facebook. You watch the social network, and it all just skyrockets overnight. <laughs> it's an overnight success. The, but the, the in, crafted origin story, exactly. Right? <laughs> yeah. But in reality, you put something out, and you might get a spike, you might not. But that doesn't spell the success or failure of your mm. startup. It's about what you do after that, and it's about how you grow and how you cultivate your community, how you continue to improve your product and iterate upon it. And that is the real hallmark of success. And that's what we've been doing for the last 11 years. And that's what I'm going to get into, right? Because like a lot of people listening to this uh, early stage or, you know, in the ecosystem and grinding away and then they go, oh, Canva, yeah, fuck. overnight success. You know, overnight, it's been largely 15, 20 years or whatever it is. So talk us through the early days. Like, did you know from early that you know, we're onto something here? I think when you were on to something, how big that something would be, uh, you don't really know. Like, yeah. Yeah, I think everyone hopes that yeah. everyone in the world is going to use their thing yeah. at some stage, but the actual reality of it is, is very different. We knew that some people would love our tool. We knew that we loved it. And honestly, building for us is a lot of our inspiration. And I think it really helps us shortcut the product development process a lot. Like, Who, who, who was the first customer? Was it school still? Was it? Um, no, the first customers for Canva were social media marketers. Uh-huh. So this was 2013. Instagram had just kind of started picking up. Pinterest had a bit of a uh, bit of flow going, and there was this emerging class of people who were helping others navigate social media. So they're mm-hmm. helping businesses get onto Twitter, uh, helping them get onto Instagram, and they needed to create a bunch of content for those people. Uh, and Canva was the perfect tool for them because they weren't professional designers. They yeah. didn't have access or knowledge about other tools you could use. And Canva was a well, quick, Microsoft simple... Microsoft Paint or Adobe, right? Yeah, was... pretty much, exactly. <laughs> yeah. uh, and Canva really hit this sweet spot for them. Yeah. And I think we were lucky that that audience was also very vocal. Uh, so they were an amazing growth audience because they would pick up Canva, then they would write a blog post about it, and then they would do 20 tweets about it. So it naturally spread really virally. And that uh, customer-driven word-of-mouth growth is something that we still rely on today. Like Mm. people having a great experience with our product is our best growth channel because when they have a great experience with Canva, they share it with other people, they tell other people, they recommend it to them. Um, and it is by far and away the best growth channel you can have. Yeah. And so talk me, so how, you, like you, how do you get to that stage though, right? And so you, you take it to market, you've got some early adopters that are sort of going, and then are you then talking to those customers, are you iterating on that product quickly, or are you just setting your product and you know what it wanted to be? 
So we had our big vision of, you know, design tool for everyone. Yeah. Um, and we knew eventually what the product shape should look like. We started prototyping and designing and doing various mock-ups and putting those in front of people. And we started seeing real excitement from those social media managers. Mm. Um, so we started then honing the product to towards them. Yeah. It wasn't like we weren't going to build a design tool for everyone, but in terms of prioritizing what features we're going to build first, um, building it for them became the goal. And that's yeah. what we launched in August 26, 2013. From there, we then kind of in parallel kept improving the product for them, but then also building out the rest of the vision that we had. Mm. So the first version of Canva pretty much did social media graphics. Quickly after that, we added on presentations because when you can add multiple pages to a thing, it naturally evolves into something that you can tell a story through. Mm. Um, and we had the presentations product there. We didn't have a big launch for presentations. Uh, and it's been a slow but a fast burn. Uh, so presentations, we probably didn't focus on it a lot for like three or four years, but it just kept growing and growing. And startup scene started really loving it. We started seeing more pitch decks being created in yeah. Canva. It became a real core tool of any business builder for someone who was starting a business at that time. Um, then COVID hit, presentations just went bananas. We went from 20 million presentations created a month to 40 million in the space of a couple of months. Uh, and that really signaled to us that uh, Canva was really ready to go broad now. It mm. wasn't just marketing materials. It was a lot of work-related stuff. Obviously, it was presentations. Um, and it was at that point, which was 2020, um, that we really started building out the visual suite that we now have, which incorporates... Uh, long-form documents, whiteboards, presentations, mm. videos, and even websites. Um, and we've seen amazing adoption of that, particularly amongst teams and enterprises. Uh, and the, the uh, audience that we've had has grown from 30 million around the start of 2020 to now we have 135 million people using the product every month. Is it crazy still to you or is it? It's pretty crazy. For the, for the presentation <laughs> I was doing today, I was kind of looking back at the numbers and the growth curve, and we had 1 million users in 2016. Yeah. Then four years later, we had 30 million, and then three years after that, we had 135. And the curve on that is just crazy. But often, you don't, you, you know, again, the original point around like origin stories and yeah. it being all shiny, when you're in it, you don't, no. You're, not, you're not looking at that exponential no. graph all day. You're just looking at yesterday and today. And, you know, today might be down from yesterday because there's some little blip and you need to solve out that problem. Yeah. So you're just always thinking about putting one foot in front of the other and just doing the best today for tomorrow. Yeah, it's funny. Everyone I talk to always says it's easy to look back in retrospect now and say, you know, this is how we did it. And, you know, you can look at it from a much larger look, a lens. But, you know, in the time, fuck, you know, like every decision's hard. Right? Yeah. And how do you, as like, so... Thinking of you personally, like you, Cameron, as a chief product officer, how do you evolve your own skill set to be able to go from a early stage startup to, you know, like a billion dollar business now? I think I, I resisted it for a long time. So my particular nature is in building stuff. Like I love designing things. I love coding things. I love shipping actual product that I've made to people. Mm. Um, and 
We did that for a long time. So probably did that for five years uh, as the team kind of grew around us. But it got to this point where the amount of value I was adding was getting less and less because you bring on a design team, you bring on more engineers, and that just means you're one of now 50 people that are working on the product. Mm. So the, the number of lines of code that you write have less effect. Uh, and you need to then figure out what your next level of impact is. And it's a common story at Canva for everyone, not just for the founders. Mm -hmm. um, everyone at Canva needs to figure out their next level of impact, um, whether they're going to lead a team or they're going to kick off a new big product or whatever their next step is. We're constantly talking to them about it and we have a whole coaching framework set up around it. Um, but yeah, it took me probably five or six years to get comfortable with not being on the tools and really understanding how to work with the team. How are, you, are you a natural leader? Uh, probably, I don't know. I'd say I'm a natural leader, but I'm not a natural delegator. Sure. Um, so I'm comfortable getting up in front of people and inspiring them and getting them to move towards a vision. But when it comes down to it, like getting someone to create a video product I want to work on that. Yeah. Um, so it was, it was quite hard to give that up. And I had to learn how to do that. And also, I think, mature. It wasn't necessarily like going and reading a book. It was about maturing in my own personality um, and getting satisfaction from helping guide people to a solution rather than handing them the solution, mm -hmm. uh, getting really invested in their growth seeing where they're going to go and being proud of when they achieve their goals and when they did something that they never thought they could do. Um, and then beyond coaching the individuals, thinking about the team structures and how we get 4,000 people now at Canva to all move in the same direction, understand the strategies that we have for this year, three years, five years, yeah. um, and communicating that out now across not just Sydney, but all of Australia. We've got ton New of people Zealand. in New Zealand. Yeah. Uh, we've got eight offices around the world from Austin to London. Um, and it's a very different process now than when it was just three of us yeah. back in the same room in Surrey Hills. Yeah. How do you like, and what, so product management, right? So we're putting your product management hat on. There's, there seems to be a lot of talk in the industry at the moment in terms of product, you know, should there be product managers, should there be engineering delivery managers and the likes? How do you like, scale product in a company your size? I think you see a lot of people talking about product managers and do we need product managers at different stages of their growth. And sometimes you need a reset in what yeah. you're doing. But I think the value of a product manager or a product manager type person is undeniable. Like you always need someone who is looking after bringing all the pieces together because you can put an engineer and a designer in the same room, but getting them to agree and compromise and come up with a great solution is a whole process in itself. And often those two individuals can't do that. They need a third person to be able to facilitate the conversation, have an outside perspective and be able to step back a bit more. And that's really what we see product managers doing. They do have product vision, but it's also about bringing the team together, having those conversations, figuring out what's necessary, what's unnecessary, what we're going to ship in three months versus six months, um, and making sure that what we launch is really valuable to our customers and a great experience, given all the constraints that we have going on of time, of people, of money. Mm. Um, and it's, I think it's a really chaotic 
and messy role being a product manager it's and it's hard. and it's very different at every company yeah. like as i said before every company does product management mm. differently so uh, you can't have or you can't guarantee that a successful product manager at google is going to be able to go to amazon or canva yeah. and be as successful because product management is very much a reflection of the culture and the processes that are built up over time um, so bringing product managers into canva uh, takes a lot of context sharing takes a lot of mentoring um, we encourage people to really understand how the team works and how other products ship inside canva uh, before they just start throwing their own playbooks mm. at it um, and the best product managers we have are the ones who do take that time to listen and really work with their teams and work together collaboratively to produce a great product. Mm. How, do you, how do you go about scaling the culture and the teams and the way the teams assemble as you grow and you know, as fast as you've grown over the years? Is that something you're always thinking about? Yeah, we're always thinking about it. Um, it's definitely grown, I think, in terms of headcount size, it's definitely grown beyond what we ever would have yeah. imagined originally. Um, and you, you need to keep track of it. I think one of the roles that you have as a founder is noticing when stuff is broken. Because mm. most people, even though something's broken, they'll just continue to keep doing it. Like yeah. the process of written down, we'll do the process even if it's not quite working. And one of your roles as a founder is to spot those moments and go, okay, this thing is definitely not working. We need to scrap it and do something completely differently. Um, and that's happened multiple times through our headcount growth of being able to have everyone in the same meeting or being able to share our strategy, you know, just in a room. Uh, obviously, as we've gone remote, it's, it's raised its own, um, you know, challenges with communication mm. and asynchronous work and a whole bunch of things that we didn't have to deal with when we were all in the same office building. Um, so realizing those moments and changing it up, coming up with new ways to deal with that growth uh, is an important part of being a startup founder. And it's something that I can't exhort people enough if they are thinking of running their own startup or, in the, or they're yeah. in the midst of it, is to constantly be stepping back and doing that check and saying, are we on the right path or do we need to change a gear now? Yeah. Do you think like pulling that trigger though, you think you get better at it the bigger, like, the bigger the company's grown, you get better at pulling that trigger faster and making those harder decisions? Is that something you've learned, you've had to learn or...? Yeah, I think the decisions get bigger and bigger. Mm. So uh, they get a little harder to pull the trigger on <laughs> each time, but you also get faster. So it probably evens out, I think, in terms of overall time spent. Yeah, but you probably have more of the confidence to pull the trigger in, in your own decision-making, right? Like as you've done, you've solved a few hairy problems and made some hard decisions. It, gets, it probably gets easier to make those decisions. Definitely, you have more confidence in yourself. I mean, when you start out, you have your idols and you have your preconceptions of what a tech company should be like. Yeah. Uh, and you try and fit into those models, but sometimes those models don't work and you discover that the hard way. Um, so yeah, you do become more confident in your own direction and the culture that you're building um, and your ability to drive that culture and basically get other people on board because you'll have a lot of people coming along who say, this is how I did it at some other company or you shouldn't be doing that because this happened when mm. I did it on this other project. Um, and you get a little more used to tuning out those voices. Yeah. What keeps you awake at night now, mate? Uh, keeping me awake at night is, 
I think just continuing to stay flexible. Um, we still consider ourselves a startup. Yeah. We still consider ourselves able to turn on a dime and go after opportunities. Yeah, that only it in, right? So Pretty much, yeah. Um, so when something like AI emerges, yeah. um, it's moved incredibly rapidly over the last 18 months. And we've been really proud of how fast the teams have moved to embrace that technology, deepen our experience in it, um, elevate the people who are already doing that stuff behind the scenes um, was, and was really bring them to the fore. Was there a black room, windowless room, innovation room there <laughs> to working on AI projects at Canva? I don't think we'll do a black room at Canva. <laughs> um, we're, we're a bit more open with innovation NDA uh, at and... Canva. Uh, yeah, no NDA signed. Uh, yeah, we, we try and encourage innovation to happen day to day rather yeah. than this discrete thing that happens. Um, and there's been countless moments where someone has hacked something together, shown it to a couple of people, and that's turned into a product launch three months later. Um, and we're really proud of that. And I think it's, it's not the only way you can innovate, but it's definitely one of the ways you should be innovating mm. because you as a leader aren't going to come up with the ideas all the time. Um, and you're not going to stay on top of every piece of technology and all the movements that are happening across the world. So having great people who are deep into one sort of technology or really understand a customer or where a product's heading is super important because they're important signals that can get sent up through the company and create the next big launch that you're going to have or the next pivot that you might make. Awesome. Speaking of big launches... Man, that was like a, an Apple-esque event, right? That was fucking cool, man. Like the whole look, the, the production. The, the, John, I want to know we're chatting about. Like, can we talk? Can, we, can I ask you how much that cost to do an event like that for a start? Uh, I don't know the exact budget. It was definitely a lot more than we spent on any <laughs> previous event. Yeah. But we've kind of been working our way up to it. So mm. we have we have quite a strong. Um, DNA of doing events at Canva. We just haven't done many of them very publicly. Um, so we're constantly doing all-hands catch-ups. Uh, and we have this thing called season openers, which happen every three months. And it's a way for the company to get together and for every team within Canva to talk about what they've achieved mm. and what their goals are for the next quarter. Um, and we've often made them pretty wacky, pretty crazy. Like people film... 80s-style MTV videos for them. They get dressed up. We have different themes like Game of Thrones or Palm Springs or Magic Show. Um, so they always get a bit crazy and then we have a big party at the end of it. And we've done that for, I don't know, six years now and they've gotten bigger from 100 people to 1,000 people to 2,000, spread out around the globe, hosted at different times. Uh, so teams within Canberra have gotten used to putting on those events and going to the next level of having a public event and bringing the Canva culture to the world stage. Mm. So we didn't want to put on an Apple event. We wanted to put on a Canva event yeah. that showed off what we're really about um, and gives people a bit of an insight into who's building this product that they love using. Uh, and I think we did that really effectively. Yeah, it was great, man. I, really, I enjoyed it. Um, you talked before about your heroes, you know, like in the early days. How does it feel like now that you're the shoes on the other foot, like that you're a hero and people are looking up to you and people are reaching out to you for advice? Uh, I still definitely feel like no one should be looking to me for advice <laughs> or, or holding me up as a hero. I feel very privileged to be able to talk about our journey and to be able to share it with people. And I know that not everything I say is going to be useful to people. Yeah. Like it, it is highly contextual. It's in the moment 
the scene has changed dramatically, technology has changed. So I feel lucky that I can pass that on and hopefully some people get some uh, nuggets of knowledge out of it. Um, but I'm not going to be able to tell you how to make the next yeah. billion dollar startup. You, you have to figure it out for yourself. Email, definitely. <laughs> <laughs> yes, tackling email is, is a terrible idea. Yeah. So if you were, let's, let's touch on that a little bit though, right? Like if you were to write a book right now and say, right, I'm going to try and give all my wisdom back, what would chapter one be? Chapter one would be find your people. Yep. Um, so much of my life has been about connecting with other people and trying it out. Um, I'm an introvert. I don't really like going to a cocktail party or anything like that. Yeah. But going to the right industry events, finding people that you just really gel with, who share their ideas with you, who build on top of your ideas, it's like super valuable. And I've done that a whole heap through, through my career. A lot of them were not successes. Um, you know, Canva has been the one big success that has happened, but yeah. there are a bunch of things that failed before that. Um, and finding that right combination of people, understanding yourself enough to say, okay, I need help with this thing. I need someone else who can properly do the business side or the technology side yeah. or the design side. And then finding that right person who can fit together with you like a jigsaw, like it's not a mathematical equation. It's mm. something you just have to try and try and try again. And eventually, hopefully you find the right combination. Mm, awesome. So there's been um, obviously quite, there's some great Aussie lighthouse companies now, right, that are sort of passing the way, sort of going forward. Um, what do you think is the future for Canva and Australia? Like, do you feel a responsibility now to like help the ecosystem and continue to sort of push forward to generate other companies that come out of it or? Yeah, we definitely love inspiring the next wave and that's part of being here at uh, Blackbird Sunrise event is to pass on a bit of that knowledge and hopefully spur the next company that's going to be bigger than Canva. Um, there's, there's also been a lot of people, I think, who have gained experience at Canva and we're starting to see them start their own companies yeah. now, which is fantastic. Uh, and seeing them uh, put runs on the board and really succeed is, is a moment of pride. Uh, sure, speaking yeah. to that you know, maturation that, that I've been through, seeing them succeed is, is really wonderful. Um, and I think the more of that we can do, the better off we'll be here in New Zealand and in Australia. Yeah. And what are you like? Um, would you go again? Like if you left Canva hypothetically tomorrow, not that you said you would or anything, right? Would you do it again? Or are you, do you feel like you'd play a less active role going forward? It's an interesting question. I don't. Because you feel like, to me, you feel like a builder. Yeah, like, I wouldn't. You have to build the right thing. Mm. It's not like someone can just come to you with an idea and you can figure out how to yeah. build it. And Canva is such a confluence of my skills, my passions, finding the right people, right moment in my life, like even having a family, all those things. Like it, it's a combination of that. So I'd need to find something that I'm equally as passionate about because to go on this journey, it's not build and flip. Yeah. Uh, it is something that you have to invest hours, nights, weekends into and in order to do that without turning into a nervous wreck, you need to believe in it. So you're not just taking any old idea. You're taking something that you truly believe needs to be in the world and is going to have a great impact on the world. Oh. Uh, and those things for me are pretty rare. 
How hard is it to protect that as you get companies trying to acquire you, you know, earlier in this stage of a, of a business? You know, like how hard is it to say, no, we're not going to take that money. We're just going to keep going on this path. Uh, for us, it was pretty easy because we had a, you know, we had a huge vision yeah. and anyone who approached us was really trying to truncate that vision. Yeah. Um, so we didn't, we never saw a path forward where we would go inside another company or be acquired and we would be happy with what we've achieved. Um, so I think it's that belief in our vision that's driven us and has meant that the only really logical path to us is to build an amazing company that stands on its own two feet. Yeah, cool. And so remote, I want to talk about remote now quickly. Um, that seems to like have really like accelerated people's growth in terms of being able to hire remote. Is that like, obviously you're hiring, you've had a lot of people here in New Zealand now and throughout the world, is that just to be able to get access to talent? I think uh, for us, COVID really changed the game. Prior to that, we had quite a strong in-office culture. Um, not that you couldn't not turn up to the office if you yeah. had a dentist appointment or something, but we just found it easier and better to build that way. And I think COVID forced us to rethink that and develop not a new culture, but adapt our culture to a different way of working. Um, and the teams really embraced it. Like overnight, they figured out how to connect over Zoom, how to properly run whiteboarding sessions, all the things that mm. you know we all figured out. Um, and that opened our eyes to the possibilities of not being in office. Uh, and so we started kind of organically hiring people outside of Sydney. So the first few hires we did were in Melbourne in Australia, which is... We'd, we'd had a terrible run of trying to hire people in Melbourne. Trying to get people from Melbourne to move to Sydney is like I'm a Herculean Mel I'm task. I'm a Melbourneian, right? So yeah, <laughs> you too, right? Like it's hard. Yeah. yeah. Um, so being able to hire them in Melbourne and them happily staying in Melbourne was like a great win. And then In it, Richmond, right? Cremorne, was it? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, and then we started, you know, getting people in Brisbane, in Perth. Uh, and then, yeah, I think New Zealand was, was next off the ranks. And... Now we wouldn't, we don't hire people just willy nilly anywhere in the world. They still have to be close to a hub because time zones cause real issues. Mm. Um, so we do have offices in London and Austin and Vienna and Beijing. Um, so we try and hire people close to those hubs uh, because otherwise, if you don't have any time zone overlap with people that you're working with, it becomes really hard. Yeah. Um, so it's not a free for all, but definitely hugely flexible and, and hybrid now. And we don't have any rules about how many days you need to come into an office. We let people police it themselves. And largely it's about the team. Um, what does the team want and need? And how do you work with your teammates? Because your teammates might be fully into remote and happy never seeing you except mm. for once a year. Or your teammates might be like, no, let's all get together four times a week. Um, and we let the teams figure that out. And we just stress two two philosophies, which is flexibility and connection. So we want people to have flexibility now to be able to choose when and where they work, but we also want them to connect because that connection is really important for building. Physical connection? Yes, physical yeah. connection, because it's really important for building safe, trusted, secure bonds in a team. Um, and we found that if you don't have that time together, it doesn't need to be a long time, it can be once every six months, maybe once a year. But you need to have that time together to really bridge the gap 
Otherwise, you end up with kind of a vacuous relationship. Yeah, awesome. Hey, well, one last question. I'm conscious of your time. If you, are you investing now yourself? Yeah, a little bit. What do you look for when you invest? Uh, my wife and I are kind of more focused on the environment, mm-hmm. um, particularly on biodiversity. Um, so we've invested in a few climate startups. Um, there's one here today called Someday that's actually from Tasmania. They're, they're located in Burnie, which is a small town up in, in the north of Tasmania. Um, we've put a bit of money into that. Um, but yeah, we also look at uh, a lot of agritech mm-hmm. um, and environmental tech, which uh, at the moment is centering around monitoring, reportment, reporting and verification, MRV, mm-hmm. um, which is becoming increasingly important in terms of protecting the environment because you need to know that the work that you're doing on land is having returns. Mm. Awesome, man. Hey, well, I really appreciate you taking the time to come on, man, and I'll let you get back out there and enjoy the rest of the day chatting to all the people. And um, it's it's really cool what Blackbird's done, bringing founders together to talk to founders and like sharing your knowledge. And I always say, if you're lucky enough to ride the elevator back, send it back down when filled with information <laughs> to help it, you know, the next person take it. And so thank you for that, mate. Yeah, so good to chat to you. Well, we've been wanting to talk to someone from Canva for a while and it did not disappoint Cameron Lovely guy. Really appreciated chatting with him. Such an easy person to chat to. Obviously had some amazing success and super well-grounded. Lots of lessons in there for startup founders. And so I hope you enjoyed that one. There's still a few more to come out on this series. And so now is the time to lock down and follow, subscribe, like, do all those things so that you can see the next ones that are coming out. Until next time. This podcast is produced by John Otaka from Empire Films.